Man of Scream. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 92 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we're going to look at episodes... Five and six of season one of Super Friends, which would be the for the season entitled just Super Friends. I will be covering the episodes Dr. Pelagian's War and The Shame on You, which when you say that out loud is kind of a little bit of wordplay on shame on you, which I just noticed as I said that. Probably probably because uh, when I first read it, I was reading that last name as Shaman and not Shaman. So anyway, that's what I have on tap for you on this episode. You know, and I want to say as I enter my third episode of Super Friends coverage, I really hope you're enjoying these episodes more than uh, the previous coverage of the uh, Filmation cartoons. I know I am, even though I am finding the initial episodes to be kind of long and I'm look- looking forward to other seasons where there are shorter stories and things are a little more segmented. So before I get into these episodes... Today, I will uh, address some feedback from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 82. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. It looks like the writers were hitting the doldrums as they hit the second half of season two with stories that really weren't all that memorable. I guess they can't all be gems. Even the Superboy segment weren't all that exciting, but we'll always have crypto. I must say, the Superboy story, Finger of Doom, with that title brought two things to mind. First, I wonder what Professor Alan Middleton would be would make of that title since he is known to be a strong proponent of Marvel's Doctor Doom. Second, it was Dr. Bailey's hand, rather than just his finger, that brought, quote-unquote, Doom. So was the writer just trying to make the kids chuckle over Finger of Doom? Crypto canine detective didn't really give Crypto much real detective work to do, but I imagine he had some fun freeing his fellow dogs and taking down the man who used them for evil purposes. The obsession you noted with giant bugs certainly forms the major underpinning for both War of the Bee Battalion and the Toy Man Super Toy, and giant animals and insects were a pretty common sci-fi thing back in the 50s and 60s. I'm not a big fan of Brainiac as a subservient robot, rather than the independent android of the comics, so I wasn't impressed with the cage of glass, and the use of super ventriloquism in Atomic Superman just made me laugh. I don't think even super ventriloquism works if Superman keeps his mouth closed. To address Steve Rogers' hypothesis about the visual nature of the Fleischer cartoons versus the audio nature of the Filmation cartoons, I have some thoughts. I wasn't old enough to have seen the Fleischer cartoons at the movie theater. Even Dragomolium, Bob Fisher, isn't that old. I am old enough to have watched the Filmation cartoons when they originally aired. Part of Steve's thinking was that the TV sets of the time had relatively small screens that were often black and white rather than color. By 1967, due to significant price decreases and the elimination of a federal excise tax, color TV sets were becoming much more common, and screens on the console sets, which were what many people had, were commonly 23 to 25 inches, which is probably a bit bigger than Steve was thinking. See the 1966 TV Guide TV Set Buyer's Guide. And, uh, 
Dave put a link here, and if I remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. It was also very common, as you noted, for kids to sit very close to the TV, faces merely inches from the screen, prompting scolding from parents. Don't sit too close, you'll ruin your eyes. Also, my own experience was that, at least as a kid, my imagination could easily fill in any gaps in the animation. Even when reading the comics in my imagination, I could see Superman fly, not just see a static image on a page. I think kids are very forgiving and accepting, especially when it comes to their favorite characters. When watching these cartoons and many of others of the time, I was immersed in them, almost like today's virtual reality, but I was using my imagination rather than digital technology. All that said, certainly the Filmation cartoons were very talky, which as an adult I ascribe to their early dependence on recycled radio scripts, and perhaps the idea that the kids need a verbal reinforcement of what they're seeing. As a kid, I don't think I noticed it as much as I do now as an adult. And uh, before he signed off, Dave uh, put a little footnote here. The the Dreiger Molium was the head of the Science Council on Krypton, and that seems the proper title for so distinguished a Superman podcaster as Bob Fisher. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, Dave sure left a lot to unravel in that letter, and uh, yeah, I'm going to agree with his first point about how uh, writers were hitting the doldrums. I think at this point, I was hitting the doldrums in my coverage of the Filmation cartoons. And as for what Professor Alan Middleton would make of the Finger of Doom uh, story title, I'm not even sure if the good professor listens to the show, but I'm sure he just enjoys hearing the word Doom in any kind of title. And yes, uh, technically it was Bailey's hand that uh, that brought the Doom. But the finger is on the hand, so I'm sure this is just a case of the writer, uh, the writing and the animation just not stinking up. And I totally agree with Dave about Crypto's canine detective. It didn't really give Crypto much detective work, just some sniffing around and some canine hijinks. And I have nothing to add on Dave's comment about how giant bugs were a staple of the science fiction movies of that time. And the uh, super ventriloquism of the uh, Atomic Superman was completely laughable, and I agree with Dave there. And as far as the uh, TV sets go, you know, I guess if the screen was clear enough, you don't necessarily need the aid of the narration telling you what's going on. I mean, a 25-inch TV is uh, nothing to sneeze at. I had a 20 or so inch TV in my room when I was a kid. I mean, it wasn't huge, but it was definitely big enough to see what was going on. I mean, even if the picture is a little fuzzy. And I have fond memories of the... Don't sit so close from my parents, mostly from my grandmother. Haven't ruined my eyes yet. I do wear glasses, but there's no proof that any of my TV-watching habits contribute to the fact that I wear glasses today. And I really like Dave's comment about how uh, kids can fill in the gaps and uh, with, with their own imagination. That's definitely something that they probably are very more forgiving than adults are, even though I was wondering about things like consistency and stuff when I was a kid. I mean, you could, I could definitely see kids... Uh, not caring about some of the things that us adults like to complain about with regards to superheroes. And how Dave points out that kids are more forgiving with their favorite characters. I think as adults with our favorite characters, we've, we've become less forgiving. If you look at some of the uh, fractured fandoms that are that are out there these days. And when I say fractured, I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily people, you know, liking different aspects of some certain things. I mean, fractured in the sense that the minute somebody likes something other than somebody else, there's a big war over it. I mean, people are still carrying the torch over Batman v Superman almost two years later. It's time to move on. It's not healthy, no matter what your opinion on that film is. And I thought the Man of Steel fights would never die down. The Batman v Superman, uh, especially in the wake of uh, Justice League, haven't gone away yet, and they certainly need to. All right, and uh, Dave uh, had even more to add. Uh, Dave sent in an additional email in... Uh, Kind of an addendum to what he sent previously. And he says, Sorry to make this even longer, but I realized I forgot to answer one of your questions. 
You asked about the episode of the George Reeves Adventures of Superman where Superman swallowed an explosive liquid. That was the season two episode, The Whistling Bird, in which Uncle Oscar, played by the wonderful Sterling Holloway, in trying to invent flavored glue for postage stamps and accidentally invents a powerful explosive. At one point, Superman swallows a batch of the explosive, which goes off inside of his body, causing no harm, but causing a bit of a smoke to escape his mouth. So, thanks, Dave. I don't know why I was blanking on that episode at the time. It's a very memorable scene in The Adventures of Superman. Even before I did the show, I remembered that sequence. So, with feedback now out of the way, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with Dr. Pelagian's War. Hang around, folks. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start with Dr. Pelagian's War. And the original broadcast date was October 6, 1973. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Wendy and Marvin see an albatross that gives a warning from Dr. Pelagian and a demonstration of his power, a temporary tidal wave, while at a seaside carnival. Listen to the voice of Dr. Pelagian. Let the defilers... Beware! They have one hour to stop their pollution of the seas before the seas strike back. The Super Friends get reports of Dr. Pelagian's warnings to stop polluting the seas from other places. This Dr. Pelagian has got to be a genius, whoever he is. You mean Dr. Pelagian is not the man's real name? Not likely, Wendy. Pelagian is a word that means inhabitant of the open sea. Good morning, all. Good morning, Colonel Wilcox. We've gotten your printouts on the Albatross. Yes, well, there are dozens more of those reports coming in yet. I don't mind telling you, the government is seriously concerned that... But golly, I don't see why... Oops, I'm sorry I butted in, Colonel Wilcox. It's all right, Wendy. You were saying? Well, I mean, after all, Dr. Pelagian... Or whoever he really is... He didn't do anything, did he? He created that wave, then pulled it back at the last moment. That wave could have devastated everything in its path. Anyone with that kind of power is dangerous. Especially when he's a fanatic, as Dr. Pelagian obviously is. 
He seems to have the idea that only he is fighting pollution. And nothing could be further from the truth. Last month, the industrialists themselves held an emergency meeting and agreed to cooperate in eliminating pollution. Yes, and? They decided to take all necessary steps. Hey, how about that? Democracy in action. Except for three holdouts. Three out of a hundred, that's not bad. Then, if Dr. Pelagian carries out his threats, it would be against these holdouts. Yes. It's the classic case of the immovable meeting the irresistible. Three stubborn industrialists clashing with a brilliant, dangerous fanatic. With the nation winding up the loser. Right. There's less than a half hour to go till noon, then anything can happen. Wow. Condition red. What can we do to help, Colonel? I want your help in getting the three holdouts to cooperate. We'll need data. Data printouts coming up. Thanks, and good luck, all of you. The three refuse to change despite being asked by the heroes. Never mind that. What's the meaning of this interruption? J.M., I just want you to know this was not my idea. Nor mine. I was led to believe that there was to be an important meeting here. And so there is, to discuss a certain warning about noon. Issued by a certain Dr. Pelagian. That character and his noon warning, you expect me to take him seriously? I think maybe you should. According to his warning... noon and what's happened nothing quite right this pelagian's a phony exactly a fraud why he ought to be great scott what's happened a sudden spring shower what else a sudden very oily spring shower this was all your doing, Superman? Oh, come now, Mr. Hutchinson. Oil pollution. Back to the polluters of the sea. And let the other two merchants of smog and pollution be warned. The sea will strike back at them, too. Eh, don't tell me you don't have anything to do with that, either. We all know you can fly like a bird. Aquaman confirmed who Dr. Pelagian is. Three hours since Wonder Woman took off after that bird. We're all getting anxious about Dr. Pelagian's real identity. Not anymore. I think I know who he is now. We're listening, Aquaman. I've been doing some research, following a hunch, about who's behind all this. Well, who is he? Professor Ansel Hilbrand, the most brilliant marine biologist and engineer I ever met. Say, I remember him now. Isn't he the leading authority on the albatross? Right. I haven't heard anything of him for a number of years. But all indications point to the fact that he's probably our man. Well then, let's check out Professor Ansel Hilbrand. We'll do it for you, Superman. Be my guests. While Wendy and Marvin return to the carnival to track him, Wendy and Marvin finally meet him and go on his sub. Wendy and Marvin? My name is Dr. Pelagian. Won't you come aboard? Dr. Dr. Pelagian? Why, yes, uh, I guess we would. So glad to have you aboard. You and Marvin are honored guests here on the Sprite. Uh, one thing, sir. Where's the crew? There is none, Marvin. The Sprite is completely automated. You mean we're the only ones aboard? 
there's my friend and companion, Maurice. And here are more, dear friends. Meet Hector and Helen. Not only my friends, also my messengers, my eyes, my ears. And your voice, too. Right, sir? Ah, Marvin, you've heard it, eh? Let's proceed. Rex, the whale, you've already met. Oh, sure. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his taxi service. True. He and all the other whales are my very special friends, as are the squids, the seahorses, and all the other citizens of the deep. Did you say citizens, sir? Of course. The sea world is their world, a world that is infinitely more interesting and varied than anything the land or air can offer. A world of citizens with whom I play, work. In fact, I've even learned to talk to them. You talk to the fishes, too? We knew Aquaman did. But we didn't think anyone else could. Hard to believe. Watch. It's a kind of mental telepathy. For instance, I'll think the command, scatter, and watch what happens. Wow! Now I'll think the command, Reassemble. It was only after I learned to communicate with them that I came to realize that they were friendly, simple creatures, intent only on living out their lives the way nature intended them to, without having to contend with the plague. Plague? In the ocean? The plague is man. Do you know how big the oceans are? Three times the size of all the land, aren't they? Right, but they're not limitless. And slowly and surely they're being polluted, fouled and poisoned by all the waste man tosses in. As if all the oceans were nothing but one huge garbage dump. Five years ago, I launched the Sprite, secretly built. I took to the ocean with the vow that I'd never set foot on land again until there was hope at least that man would stop polluting. After faking that accident off Point Gander, right, sir? Ah, you know about that, eh? And you also know my real name? Yes, sir. Professor Hillbrand. With Professor Hillbrand dead, no one could guess who Dr. Pelagian was. And I wanted the world to be puzzled, to keep questioning. Excuse me, a special news report. When they learn he plans to destroy the Holdouts factory with tidal waves, they send Wonder Dog to warn the Super Friends. The heroes manage to save the factories, and then Superman and Aquaman manage to locate the sub. The three financiers are finally agreed to help stop polluting, but Dr. Pelagian understands that his actions are wrong. Gentlemen, I speak for Miss Garraway and Mr. Finwick. Don't you always? But this time I... that is, we... I mean to say all of us. What he's trying to say is... We're ready to sit down and discuss things with anyone. Tottering tycoons, listen to that. And we're determined now to do all we can to fight pollution. If you happen to see Dr. Pelagian, please tell him that. Well, that calls for a celebration. Whoa, hold on here. We're not through yet. Right. There's still the small matter of Wendy and Marvin. Okay, and here we go. We got another episode where our villain is not necessarily a villain. He's a man with a cause, and his cause is, you know, trying to limit the uh, pollution to the ocean. A good cause there. Nobody should be polluting the ocean unnecessarily, but, you know, these uh, industrialists are, especially these final three. And, you know, Dr. Pelagian wants to do something about it, but what he's doing is, at the very least, against the law. I'm not sure the law has anything on the books for creating tidal waves to get your point across, but... If it did, there'd be a law against it. 
So this episode starts with the junior super friends at an amusement park when they spot a bird flying around in circles. That is the first sign that something is up, and then they see what appears to be a tidal wave. And this is when we finally hear the voice of Dr. Pelagian, who is threatening people unless they stop polluting the seas. Which sounds like the kind of thing Aquaman will be interested in, and Aquaman is going to be very heavily involved in uh, the plot and eventual resolution of this episode. Superman will have more of a minor role in both of the episodes, really, that I'm going to be talking about today. But he will be using his superpowers to, you know, prevent some uh, pretty nasty things from going wrong. So, the junior super friends report in. Robin is upset that he didn't get to surf on the tidal wave. Very upset that he didn't get to hang Ten. Well, Robin, with that costume, you better make sure Ten is all you're hanging. Just saying. We get a minute to learn uh, that what they heard talking with an albatross, which is a big bird. And then the, the trouble alert shows that the albatross is rather robotic in order to uh, broadcast Dr. Pelagian's thought. Or at the very least, his message, I'm sure. The bird is not releasing telepathic signals, it is just... He's probably speaking to, into a microphone somewhere, and the bird is transmitting his voice. Then we get more of our linguistic lessons here, as Pelagian means inhabitant of the open sea. And Wendy is apparently shocked that that isn't his real name, but I'd like to thank whichever superhero gave me that definition. I didn't uh, write it down, but thank you for informing me that what Pelagian really means. I didn't know that ahead of time. Really had no reason to know it, but I guess I'm glad to know it now. So Colonel Wilcox calls are relaying the government's concerns, and uh, Wendy butts in on the call to uh, defend Dr. Pelagian, and uh, I'm noticing here that Wilcox seems to be the only person to listen to Wendy and Marvin. The rest of these super friends just seem to wish they would shut up, but it almost seems as though Wilcox likes uh, the junior super friend's uh, spirit or something. So, again, like I mentioned, Pelagian is fighting pollution, a noble cause, so that and it's a cause that everybody should be doing their part to prevent pollution in the best way that I can. they can. I'm not saying everyone needs to be an environmentalist, but you know, don't need to leave your trash laying around. You don't need to be throwing stuff in the ocean if you can avoid it. Pretty much, uh, as soon as uh, the albatrosses start showing up, everyone's on board with uh, preventing pollution, except for three industrialists that are not involved in the drive to save pollution in any way whatsoever. They fit in real well with the uh, current political climate. So Superman shows up and wants to bring Luther Fenwick to a meeting, and basically Superman forces him by grabbing his horse and flying off, which will certainly interrupt his polo game. And this kind of uh, gave me a very Golden Age feeling of Superman as, you know, these episodes came out, you know, in what's considered by most to be the Bronze Age at this point. I've always been fuzzy about when each age, uh, one age ends and the other begins, but this is the kind of thing you'd expect out of the... uh, Golden Age Superman, who was much more of a social cru- crusader than Superman has become in the years that followed. I don't mind Superman being a little impulsive here and just picking up the horse and flying it to the meeting. Wonder Woman goes after Agatha Carraway to take her to, a, to the Dr. Pelagian meeting. She is refusing to step foot out of the house, and uh, Wonder Woman will play on, I guess, Carraway's female pride to get her to the meeting with Jay Mortimer and uh, Luther Fenwick, basically uh, saying, asking her if she wants to be the woman not participating if the men decide to do something about it but that gets her to the meeting and i'm gonna guess that by watching the episode the superman and wonder woman stuff the two meetings with agatha with caraway and fenwick both kind of occurred simultaneously of course the show can't really show them simultaneously but you have to i have to believe they happen at the same time we just saw one then we saw the other so the storytelling here is not exactly linear so then we get mr mortimer He's not taking Pelagian seriously in the slightest, as the uh, bell tolls at noon. Nothing happens after a few chimes, and our industrious industrialists are sure nothing will happen until a thunderstorm starts. Which, you know, in and of itself, a thunderstorm is not unusual, but oil rains down from the sky. 
and again we get our flying albatross again, which threatens that the sea will strike back. So, with uh, the oily rain coming down, Hutchison is constantly blaming Superman and uh, Wonder Woman for setting them up. And uh, Superman congratulates uh, Mortimer's children on their engagement and basically flies off. Now, Aquaman seems to have an idea of what's going on here. He seems to have an idea, at the very least, of who Dr. Pelagia might be. And he uh, puts forth the notion that his name is Professor Ansel Hillbrand, uh, who was a brilliant marine biologist. The most brilliant marine biologist that Aquaman had ever met. And he's also the leading authority on the albatross. All of a sudden, things are starting to uh, fall into line, and uh, we're only ten or so, we're only about eleven minutes into the episode. But other than that, Aquaman doesn't really have anything other than the fact that he kind of disappeared over the last few years. And as soon as they hear about this, the Super Friends are going to take this and run with it. And Superman just kind of lets them. I guess he figures, okay, let's work for him to do. Let the kids uh, do something for a change. So apparently we learned that Hillbrand was reported dead for five years, but his body was never recovered. And there we go. There's uh, the key indication that he's probably not dead. You know, there's an old rule in comics and TV. No one's dead until a body is found. Sometimes in comics and TV, not even then. Death is kind of a much uh, more fluid thing in the media than it is in real life. So Aquaman goes to Point Gander and he sees a volcanic eruption under sea and he finds a body. Well, actually he doesn't find the body. He uh, finds... Uh, at the very least, a diving suit, which is very uh, reminiscent of the uh, diving suits shown in the uh, 1950s episode Perry White Scoop, in which uh, in which a man wearing a diving suit was shot. That was a fun episode for those of you who remember it. So Aquaman comes back with the uh, with what we presume is a body in a diving suit, but uh, and he's riding to the surface on a stingray, which uh, causes Batman to point out that Aquaman always rides in style. I guess Aquaman is a little bit jealous he doesn't get to ride a stingray with any great regularity. So. Aquaman takes the helmet off, and he finds that the diving suit is empty. I know, who saw that coming? And apparently he was never there, so there we go. Hillbrand is faked his death, so he can become an environmental terrorist, apparently. So now Wendy has an idea. Convince the holdout to help with pollution control, and we get a moment where Marvin crashes into the fence, and he's so upset that she has about Wonder Dog and not him. Apparently Wendy thinks that the uh, three holdouts will listen to them because they're kids. Yeah. Okay. In my experience, they'll be taking they'll be taken less seriously because they're kids. So first, Wendy goes to Fenwick. Not only are there a bunch of smokestacks outside polluting the hell out of the sky, but the entire board is of directors here is smoking very smoky cigars, and eventually you can barely see a thing in this room as uh, the cloud of smoke just engulfs them all. And Fenwick says that he they feel very strongly about pollution. That's clear because they're sure creating a hell of a lot of it. And eventually, when the uh, he starts coughing as the smoke engulfs the room, uh, courtesy of Dr. Pelagian, who apparently uh, shut down the ventilation system in the room. So, right there, it kind of exposes a little bit of Fenwick's hypocrisy. As you know, he's saying he cares about pollution, but he doesn't. But he and his board have no uh, qualms about smoking, lighting up uh, big cigars in, indoors, and soiling the air. You know, and this is where we learn that Dr. Pelagian is not really doing anything to these people. He just Making them feel the effects of what they're doing. He's trying. I guess he's trying to raise awareness, but his methods are highly questionable. So now Marvin is after Caraway. Kind of interesting that uh, Wendy didn't go talk to the woman, leaving Marvin to go talk to the man. But I guess it doesn't matter. They have nothing to show for their efforts. Just the same. So Caraway echoes many of Fenwick's thoughts on pollution, and her stock ticker goes crazy and explodes, and they smoke into the air. So more indoor pollution. Now literally all of the super friends go after Hutchison. And the voices sound familiar. I think Hutchison shares a voice with Aquaman. 
and he has the same reaction to the other two, and you're going to notice that when they're all together, Hutchison does most of the talking for Fenwick and Carraway. It isn't until the very end of the episode where Carraway and Fenwick actually start speaking for themselves, at least when they're in the presence of Mortimer Hutchinson. Now, like I mentioned, he now Mortimer is just as defiant as the other two, but he did take a precaution against the against an attack by uh, Dr. Pelagian. He's holding his daughter's engagement party under a dome. But here comes the albatross blowing smoke, and it's another warning from Dr. Pelagian. Now, now the Super Friends have spent more than half of this episode going after the quote-unquote victims of the Pel- of Pelagian's scheme, and it's really hard to see them as victims, being that being of what they're doing to the environment. But in this time, the Super Friends are finally going to try to go after Pelagian who might be right in what he wants to do, but is wrong in the way that he's going about it. Marvin had this great idea of doing everything the way they did before to draw a Pelagian, but, but a penguin approaches Wonder Dog and they end up on a whale going out to sea. And that's when the junior super friends are caught by Dr. Pelagian, who surfaces on a giant sub. And he comes out looking uh, very spiffy in his brown uh, sailor suit with very short 1970s shorts and sandals. Not a good look for a middle-aged man, I must say. Apparently, Pelagian believes that humans are a plague to the oceans due to the pollution they are causing, and he confirms when Ac- that Aquaman was correct about him being Dr. Hillebrand. Hillebrand. But meanwhile, the three tycoons are standing firm against Pelagians, and they're defiant. They don't want to stop polluting, and I'm finding it very hard at some point in this episode not to sympathize with Pelagian, despite of his uh, questionable methods. And right now, these people are so defiant, they're coming off as more villainous than Pelagian, and I'm getting to a point where I'm okay with them getting their just desserts. Now there's a stroke of weird as Wendy and Marvin send Wonder Dog in Pelagian's mail to warn the Super Friends. So he can send a note of warning about the artificial tidal wave after the quote-unquote unholy three, equating the three tycoons with evil. And the terminology is really going out of its way to vilify these three people. Not that they don't seem to deserve it, but even if they do, Dr. Pelagian's methods of destruction are just as bad. So Superman uses his super strength to stop the attack on Fenwick, basically with a shield of garbage. They save Hutchinson by using uh, construction plows as shields, Aquaman and Superman do. Marvin and Wendy put milk in the machine as it warns against foreign substances. I wonder what that's going to do other than gum up the works. And the attack on Caraway is stopped with a great deal of super breath freezing a tidal wave in its place. And Batman refers to these tidal waves as babies. So, for this one, they're using a Freon coils to freeze the water and... The, narr- the narration illustrates the previous theme of using your brain to solve your problems. And now as this episode is ending, the three tycoons are suddenly willing to sit down and discuss the issues of pollution. And it's a good thing they're learning their lesson. But in a way, they're also rewarding Pelagian's bad behavior. And uh, Pelagian has been apparently driven mad by the uh, destruction of his tidal waves. He is no, he is not very happy anymore. Not that he ever was to begin with. This underwater scene is a good showcase for Aquaman, who is having a trouble talking to fish due to the uh, what Dr. Pelagian has done in the water. And this episode does a good job of showing Superman as an equal to Aquaman, but he shouldn't be able to talk on the water as well. But you know what? I guess it's one of the uh, Silver Age things you can just have to go with. There is the idea of Aquaman's telepathy, so maybe Superman can communicate with him that way. That's how he does in the modern comics, but... Either way, Aquaman and Superman have found ways to converse underwater. And the fish that Aquaman can't talk to are Dr. Pelagian's guards. So Superman and Aquaman net the fish. And I love the ease in which Superman lifts the sub out of the water and catches Pelagian. Pelagian is quite dejected by his quote-unquote defeat. But Superman and Aquaman remind him of his victory. And his victory comes in the form of the tycoons are going to start doing something about their pollution. And they're going to pay much more attention to what they're doing. Now, I wonder if they're still going to feel that way after they're caught, but this episode's not going to cover that. 
being that it's a children's cartoon, it has a vested interest in showing that the tycoons have learned their lesson. Now, this episode has a good message about doing what you can to avoid pollution, and again, Pelagian is a quote-unquote villain that wants a noble goal, but goes about it in the wrong way, and I'm not sure I like the fact that in the end, we're rewarding his behavior. It's almost like telling a kid it's okay to threaten someone and doom, quote-unquote, mean stuff to them, as long as it's for a good cause. Dr. Pelagian's methods could have caused could have caused great da- damage to life and property, but thankfully it did not. So, not a bad episode, but I am unsure how I feel about Dr. Pelagian's win. Let's just say that. So, I'm going to take a, another quick break. I'm going to play a podcast promo. Then I'm going to come back with the shame on you. Hang around, folks. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. Machines. You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's much all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into The Shame on You. Original broadcast date was October 13th, 1973, and our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Wendy and Marvin spot a mysterious U-shaped device, like a huge magnet on Mystery Mountain. They tell their super friends, and Batman and Robin come to investigate. The magnet and a laser gun are from an underground facility of a Dr. Shaman. It's gold, Madame Lebon. Solid gold. Your plan was brilliant. Drawing the space cloud toward Earth with your special gold attracting magnet, then smelting the gold dust with intense heat from the laser beam. And then, once again, using the shame on you to bring the gold nugget down to our mountaintop. Dr. Shaman. Before we do any more sky mining, I really believe we should approach this project more cautiously. Cautiously? What harm can... My studies show only 50% of the space cloud is gold dust. I don't know yet what the other particles are composed of. Who cares about side effects? All right, men, send up the laser gun. <laughs> when Wendy and Marvin managed to meet the doctor and a colleague, Madame Lebon, Laban is worried that the process may have unknown effects. Hey, what is this? We have visitors. Uh, hi. Who are you? Sir, we were just mountain climbing and, uh... Young lady, do you realize you're trespassing on private property? I'm sorry, but we just wanted to let you know that your magnet almost caused a helicopter crash. You see, Dr. Shaman, as I said, we should be more careful. We will be, Madame Lebon, after I get all the gold. Well, that's all we wanted to tell you. Now, if you'll just, um, show us the way out. Getting out of here is a most complicated procedure. We're very busy at the moment. I can't spare anyone to accompany you. 
Doctor, you can't keep these young people here all night. They've got to get home. I didn't invite them. They'll have to stay until after we've sky-mined the remainder of this space gold. Very well. But I still think we're going ahead too fast. There could be dangerous consequences. I'll worry about the consequences. You keep the youngsters out of my way. And leaves with Wendy and Marvin. Indeed, the process also causes strange gases that settle on animals and plants, causing them to alter size. Superman, look what's happening here. That elephant blew up like a balloon. Great Scott! Far off in the African jungle, a puff of green mist has made an elephant grow to twice his normal size. And now, a red mist descends on an unsuspecting giraffe. Because the red and green mists are not visible to the human eye, the super friends are completely baffled by the strange phenomenon. We must find the cause of these distortions. Aquaman, look what's happening underwater. Galloping guppies, that lobster must be 50 feet long. Those lights up ahead, isn't that the oceanography sea lab? Yes. If that giant lobster reaches it and uses that monster claw, great Neptune. See you later, super friends. I've got to do some speed swimming. Have any human beings been affected, Wonder Woman? No. Apparently, human beings are immune. But look at this. That's in Southern California, an orange grove. It's obviously affecting trees and plants, too. Great Aphrodite. Look at that orange tree grove. It's the size of a redwood. Uh-oh. And some of those branches are over the farm buildings. I'd better get there fast. Superman rescues a farm from a giant orange tree. Aquaman saves a sea lab from a giant lobster. Batman and Robin return to find Shaman, and following them are Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog, who end up growing. Shaman agrees to stop when seeing Wonder Dog. There, Dr. Shaman. It's safe to come out now. You mean some mysterious element in the air is making things grow this size? Yes, and it makes something smaller. Madame LeBon's theory is that the mystery element was created by your sky mining process. I'm sorry. I should have listened to her. Very well. No more sky mining. I'll be satisfied with my two nuggets of gold. What two nuggets, Doctor? What's happening to them? Now we know it's not just animals and plants. The mystery element also affects the stuff it came from. These gold nuggets. Like I said before. What gold nuggets? Oh, no! <laughs> Madame Laban and Wonder Woman confirm the cause of the size changes in parallel with Wendy that sunlight will reverse the effects. But fellas, there's something funny about this. You saw the giant rabbit. It was here at Mystery Mountain. The lobster was here near the East Coast. By that time, it was dark on the West Coast, too where the orange tree grew. And in Africa, where the giraffe got small, it wasn't morning yet there. So? Don't you see? All those freaky things happened only in places where it was nighttime. Great blazes, Wendy. That's a remarkable observation. She's right. Only in the night hemisphere. No reports from China or Japan. Maybe a very important clue. Wendy, that was an example of super brain work. Gentlemen! We have something. There is a way to cancel out the dangerous effects of shamanite. We find certain radiation can change its atomic structure. 
And that radiation can be found in ordinary sunlight? Yes. Who told you that? A bright young lady named Wendy. We have also discovered that humans are not affected because of our superior intellect. Human brain vibrations are strong enough to ward off the mist. But we've got to do something about the shamanite that's still in the air. It must receive that sunlight. Why don't we just sit tight until the sun rises? That'll clear up everything. It will, but we can't wait that long. It will be several hours before the sun comes up. Until then, the shamanite floating around may cause more trouble than we can handle. We've got to find a way to bring sunlight to the dark side of the Earth immediately. Holy topsy-turvy! That means turning night into day. Well, simple. All you have to do is, uh... I mean, if you gather up all the, uh... Listen, this problem requires a lot of thought. Incredible as it may seem, Marvin, you're right about one thing. I am? Uh, what'd I say? You said... This problem requires a lot of thought. And that's absolutely correct. Super friends, to the think tank. Superman uses a windmill to blow away the cosmic cloud and a telescope mirror to beam sunlight over the night sky. Okay, so this episode definitely lacks a villain. It has Dr. Shaman, who goes a little too far in his experiments, but as soon as he finds out what he's doing is harmful, he puts a stop to it immediately immediately so uh, let's uh get right into, the, into this episode and see uh, what's uh, what's going on we start off with wendy and marvin on a mountain climbing adventure and they find a, a giant metal u which looks like either a tuning fork or a horseshoe or a horseshoe magnet and uh, like i said on the in the opening i believe they described it as a u so we could have the episode title and the pun shame on you i mean shame on you dr shaman for all the things that you're going to do in this episode Hey, look, it's the, we get the backopter. And the U is gone, and Robin has the obvious question, is this the right mountain? But no, there's all kinds of things that are coming out of this little hatch. First the U, then, then a ray gun, and now it's a U again, and the U is showing magnetic properties, so, and knocks the backopter out of control. So yeah, we definitely can, it's less of a U than it is a horseshoe magnet. And apparently, it's not only pulling, uh, the backopter, it's also pulling a meteor out of this guy, and eventually the magnet will stop, and Batman will make a rough landing. I almost feel bad for Batman and Robin in the early going of this series. It seems like uh, they are the designated babysitters for uh, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. So apparently the U uh, brought down a solid gold meteor, and that's when we go inside the mountain and we meet our scientist, who's a bald man with a, a Charlie Chaplin-like mustache. This is Dr. Simeon Shaman, his uh, female partner, and the uh, blonde woman on to the right of your screen, if you watch this episode ahead of time, is his partner, Madame Lebon. She wants to be a little more cautious as they study a space cloud. Dr. Shaman, though, he's seeing dollar signs, and he uh, is throwing all kinds of caution to the wind here. So, back up of the mountain, uh, Wendy and Marvin and, and Wonder Dog are in the dark, and we see some eyes that are coming after them, and I guess they're feeling threatened. And it's, you know, the usual cartoon trope of the, you know, the eyes and the blackness. I'm not necessarily sure in that kind of pitch dark you see eyes at all, but, of course, the two, uh, the two sets of eyes belong to Batman and Robin. And that actually might be the uh, best use of Batman so far in this series. I mean, Batman so far has been very uh, Adam West and uh, Burt Ward. But here he's actually, you know, Batman coming out of the shadows, uh, doing what Batman does best. So I thought that was pretty cool, even though we only uh, get a little bit of it so far in this show. Of course, we also get our typical Marvin slapstick. He's short-footed, and then he surely falls into a big hole. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin are kind of freestyling their way down of a mountain. They are climbing down the mountain with absolutely no ropes or cables or anything. So if one of them falls, they're going to be in a serious amount of trouble. 
and Batman and Robin are not considering that anything may have happened inside of the mountain. They're assuming that whatever is going on is on the outside, which I guess you wouldn't automatically assume that something is going on inside the mountain, but they're going to find out in a little bit how wrong they are. Because uh, Wendy and Marvin will spot the laser, and they use Marvin's hole to hide. You know, the one that the short-footed uh, junior super friend used to show how short-footed he was. Now, Dr. Shaman is uh, working, is investigating a space cloud. I don't understand how a cloud can appear in space, because the gases and whatnot necessary uh, don't condense into a cloud in a vacuum. But I am not going to dispute the comic book science of this show any further. It just is. In this universe, a space cloud can appear. but And this magnet somehow turns this space cloud into gold. And then there's a mist that reacts to the atmosphere. There's no scientific basis for any of this. It just is. It happens. The animators and the plotters of this episode need for this to happen, and it does. So, we move on. Apparently, uh, Marvin's wristband is metallic, and he's stuck to the magnet. And I wish they would stop calling it a U and refer to it as a magnet. I mean, that's clearly what it is. And... My god, does Marvin never outdo himself in the stupidity department. He actually says, with a straight face, mind you, that somebody painted a meteor gold. And I'm glad Wendy calls him on it. And so you can hear that for yourself. I'm going to play that clip right now. It's another meteorite! This one didn't bounce off. Wow, look at the color of it. Somebody painted it gold. Marvin, this came from space. Who'd be up there painting meteorites gold? Meanwhile, there's all kinds of attachments coming out of that hole, and curious Wendy and Marvin hitch a ride on the device and find the secret laboratory. And there they are, always getting into trouble, and eventually they're going to need rescuing. Because it seems as though the junior super friends always get in over their heads and need rescuing. Madame LeBon is still uh, advising Dr. Shaman to let the kids go, and she basically gets put in charge of them for her trouble. I'm not sure if this is a commentary on uh, 1970s treatment of women uh, sending her you know, to deal with the kids, but she does. She dutifully goes and does this because I think she's starting to get a little too uncomfortable with Dr. Shaman's uh, work here, and she really doesn't want any part of it. And maybe she sees the kids as a way to get herself out of it. So Wendy and Marvin ask what's going on, and she basically tells the kids they are sky mining. I'm not sure how you can, what you can mine the sky for, but they're doing it. Dr. Shaman is uh, bringing down gold. So Batman and Robin find the cable car, and they wonder where it goes. Follow the yellow wire, dude. You'll find something. Meanwhile, uh, the mist comes down and uh, it mutates a rabbit, and now it's an eight-foot rabbit, and uh, Robin calls it a hair-raising hair because this show will never miss an opportunity for a bad word pun. So we also uh, get some um, bad zip lining on the uh, the cable car uh, wire. So, not bad there. That's cool. Now, one thing I can't get used to in these early episodes is what they're calling the what we'll later come to know as the Hall of Justice. Right now, it's being referred to as the Hall of Justice League, which really doesn't roll off the tongue as well as Hall of Justice does, and I'm sure most of you will agree with that. Meanwhile, the mist is uh, is out there. It's uh, enlarging and shrinking animals, so Superman tries to uh, call Batman back to the Hall of the Justice League, and uh, signing out, Batman calls Superman Man of Steel. Doesn't seem like a name you would use in conversation. It's more of a description than anything else. So apparently, the uh, green... What we're going to find out is that the green mist grows things and the red mist shrinks things. So, And we're finding that things are being kind of affected all over the United States at the very least. And the biggest threat the Super Friends can detect for uh, to deal with are a giant orange tree and a giant lobster attacking an underwater research lab. So meanwhile, back at the mountain, Batman and Robin are trying to signal the kids with 
bat code. Yeah. And he's basically using a flashlight to, uh, to blink uh, the light at them. That's bat code. Tell me, Batman, are you too good for Morse code? You know, a system that is perfectly fine. Did you, is it is something wrong that you needed to go out and create your own code? No answer. Right? You don't have an answer, do you? I don't. So apparently Dr. Shamon is too greedy for Madame LeBeau's tastes. And she basically quits and takes Wendy and Marvin with her. And she's going to report Dr. Shamon to uh, the proper authorities. Well, Dr. Shamon doesn't want to be reported to the pro- proper authorities. And if this were any other production or story or even comic book, this is the point where he would probably try to kill her. But because this cartoon is what it is, he doesn't. He just hits the brick on the cable car and he leaves them suspended for however long he needs them suspended for. At least that's his plan. I mean, obviously, this is 1973 and there are no cell phones for them to get the word out. But, you know, Batman and Robin, they're out ziplining around and uh, you would think they'd have noticed a dang hanging cable car in the middle of nowhere by now. And it's funny that just as I finished that thought, Batman and Robin come ziplining in. Batman first, then uh, Robin follows and uh, poses with his hands on his hips in all of his pantsless glory. Place to get out and walk. Yeah, I guess the motor must have conked out. We're only halfway across. It wasn't the motor. The only thing that conked out is Dr. Shaman's integrity. You think he deliberately stopped the car? I am absolutely positive. Oh, great. Because we came with some friends and they're going to wonder where we are. Friends? The dynamic duel. Batman and Robin. You know the Cape Crusaders? Sure. We know all the super friends. The super friends, eh? Those are the very people who should be told about Dr. Shaman. That's easy. We'll introduce you to Batman and Robin. Once we get out of here... Why wait that long? Mon Dieu, the caped crusader. Make that plural. Sky mining, eh? Well, my dear madame, it's unfortunate Dr. Shaman didn't heed your advice. We'll deal with him later. Right now, Robin and I must return to the Hall of Justice League, post-haste. Right, we've received an emergency call. How are we gonna get off this cable car? We can't climb down. You can't, but I can. Robin, you remain here while I fetch the Batcopter. Au revoir. So uh, now we're going to uh, get an example of how great of a helicopter pilot Batman is as he uh, hovers the uh, Batcopter next to the cable car and everybody just kind of walks off the cable car and into the helicopter like it's absolutely nothing. Or the, I don't know how high they are off the ground, but I think I'd have a little more trepidation going from one hanging object to another. That's just me. And you would also think that the uh, that the rotor on the helicopter blade would uh, be creating some kind of wind. You know, at the very least, Wendy's hair should be blowing a little bit. But it doesn't because it's animation. So now Superman is flying to California. Or is this Bizarro? His S is backwards and I can't tell. And I'm guessing it's just an animation error which I like to uh, just poke fun at because I can. So Superman pulls one of the orange trees out of the ground and knocks it to uh, the gr- down, creating a ton of orange juice to be had. There's definitely going to be no orange shortage this year. Aquaman, meanwhile, is trying to uh, get some help moving a giant lobster, but apparently one of the whales he called was shrunk by the mist, and it doesn't create any problems moving the lobster, but the tiny whale does find Aquaman, who brings it to the Hall of the Justice League, because of course he does. Now, no sooner do the Super Friends say they need to study the specimens affected, in comes Superman with a giant Valencia orange, and, a, and Aquaman comes in with a tiny whale. Of course, Marvin has to show the world how dumb he is, and uh, doubts that it's a whale until the whale blows water in his face, proving that it actually is a whale, and also proving that Marvin is an idiot. 
So now there are some other disasters going on. Superman needs to uh, save uh, Water Tower from a growing elm tree. And Aquaman is going to go uh, do something off screen that I didn't bother to pay any attention to. And Wonder Woman, who is a bit of a scientist herself, is helping um, Madame Laban uh, create an antidote for the growing and the shrinking. So, so that leaves Batman and Robin to go after Dr. Shaman. And the junior super friends are upset that they're not invited along. And after lamenting for a moment how adults think they can't do anything, they go on their bikes to Mystery Mountain to show that they can't do anything. And of course, uh, as they're traveling along on their bikes, Wonder Dog grows huge, and that breaks Marvin's bike, which leads us to a sight that I never needed to see, when Marvin and Wendy are riding Wonder Dog like he's a giant horse. As if this episode didn't get disturbing enough, Robin is next abducted by a huge tree as uh, they struggle to get up the side of the cliff. Now, bear in mind, Batman and Robin are having trouble getting up the side of this cliff here. Yet, once the tree abducts Robin, Batman unveils some bat suction cups to chase it. Where were these bat suction cups before? I mean, you, you, we just saw Batman pull these uh, suction cups out of his midsection, which which ever does lead to v- very many questions that I don't want any answers to. And uh, if Robin's going up, up, and away in this tree, why couldn't he just jump out when he needed to? Questions, questions, I got questions, people. No one has answers for me. So Remember how Marvin and Wendy suspected Batman and Robin needed help? They don't. Robin's inside, but Batman is still locked out, but he gets in and uh, Dr. Shaman retreats to a secret tunnel. And, you know, it seems almost too early in the episode for the bad guys to get caught, but this is what happens, because there's other stuff that'll need mopping up as uh, we get to the conclusion of this episode. Dr. Shaman tries to escape, but they find one dog at the doorway, and uh, that's going to push him back toward Batman and Robin, and he's going to beg to be saved. So, Shaman informs Batman that a monster is after him, but Batman just lassos one dog instead of a monster. And now that he's caught in the act, uh, Shaman is apologetic, and uh, when he realizes that his experiments are causing damage around the world. And then, to make matters worse, he loses everything as his giant gold meteorites are, are reacted on by the Red Mist, and they basically shrink away to nothing. And there goes his, uh, his fortune. So, apparently, Madame Lebon has created uh, what she calls Shamanite, and we learn that the green enlarges and the red shrinks, so they can use this stuff to fix the problems worldwide. And I uh, remember before how I mentioned the uh, Superman backwards S animation error? You know what's worse than an animation error getting through once? Doubling down on the same error by using the same exact shot twice in one episode. So Superman takes some windmill blades and disperses the cloud, and uh, I guess he couldn't do that in space without his super, with his super breath. Therefore, he needed the windmill. Now, Wendy finally proves her worth by showing that uh, all the shrinkages and enlargements happened at nighttime. Even though it looked like daytime when we saw the giraffe shrink on the computer monitor, it must have been daytime in Africa when that happened. Now, apparently, uh, humans are too smart to be affected by Shamanite, and the Super Friends will need to bring sunlight where it isn't, where it's night. So Marvin tries to uh, solve the problem, but it requires more thought than he's capable of. He just figures let's wait, and everybody else says no, that more problems might arise in the meantime, which makes a whole lot of sense. You don't want more things to grow and shrink away while you're waiting for the uh, daylight to come and solve all your problems. So the uh, Super Friends are making plans for Superman to hold a giant reflector, and it would be nice of him to be there instead of catching oranges or whatever it is he's doing. So Superman uses the mirror to uh, restore the animals to size. He got the mirror from uh, Dr. Shaman's lab. He took it right out of the telescope. So Shaman, even though he caused some of the trouble with his experiments, it's his tool that helps solve the problem. So there is some symmetry there. However, not everything is restored to its natural size, as uh, they forgot the whale that's in the uh, Hall of Justice League. 
and they start growing in the lab and Batman runs out of the hall in a scene that's very reminiscent of the uh, bomb scene in uh, the Batman movie from 1966. In that movie, Batman couldn't get rid of a bomb. This Batman just couldn't get rid of a whale. Well, he does get rid of the whale just in the middle of the street. And that's when Superman shows up and returns the whale to the ocean. <clears throat> I do like that while he wasn't a focus of this episode, Superman's presence was felt throughout and the show did a good job of him using his abilities to solve the problems that the others couldn't, even if he wasn't a, a vital part of solving the problem of the episode, he was still able to help in other ways. So we finished with Wendy cooking a meal in Madame LeBon's honor, and but she was just being a good citizen, she says, and she really didn't want to mess with the ecology. Madame LeBon, I prepared this dinner in your honor. You were the one who really alerted the world to the danger of Dr. Shaman's experiments. Please, I don't deserve applause. I was merely doing my duty as a good citizen. I have always felt it is wrong and dangerous to upset the ecological balance of nature. Mmm, terrific, Wendy. This fruit cup is out of sight. Great Neptune. Great Scott. Great Blazes. Holy Shamanite. Huh? What's wrong, fellas? Hey, what's happening to me? Oh, I'm growing. Boy, this is fantastic. Hey, super friends, wait till I'm giant size. I'll show you fellas what super really means. Oh, wow, look at me. <laughs> How's the weather up there, Super Marv? Like Madame LeBone said, you can't fool around with Mother Nature. Help! <laughs> she was really the uh, voice of reason in Dr. Shaman's experiments. We get one final joke as Marvin is going up in the air, but it turns out to be Wonder Dog just lifting the chair that he's sitting on. So, again, this episode is a lot like the rest. No real villain, just a guy whose experiment got out of control. Would be nice if Dr. Shaman participated in cleaning up the mess he created, but eh, no dice, I guess. So, next time I'm going to cover the next two uh, Super Friends episodes, Too Hot to Handle and The Androids. Until then, you can send me some email. Feedback is always welcome manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over the Facebook group. Just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's called now. That helps other people find the show. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo no opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast. <laughs>